Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I'm covering the news for the week of September 2nd, so let's, uh, let's get into it. The first story is by Bill Sawicki out of Healthcare IT News. And the headline is Implementation Best Practices, Kicking Off Quality and Safety Tech. And so just like I've done in previous weeks, I'll read you a few lines from the article, and then we'll talk about why this, this might be important for CMIOs. And so the article, I'm going to start somewhat in the middle here, where it talks about how most hospitals and health systems still rely on the, quote, see something, say something, end quote, uh, method, which is formerly known as voluntary event reporting, only able to identify approximately 5% of patient safety events, perhaps 10% if they're looking at claims data. They go on to say that adverse event data provides a valuable lens into quality. Most health systems do not regularly evaluate policies, procedures, protocols, order sets, and the like for how safe they are using an efficient and effective method on a regular basis. And if they do, it's not likely to be a comprehensive, systematic, continuous, and efficient method. So today, a healthcare organization using event reporting and or claims data is performing root cause analysis only on a small set of patient safety event data, meaning they are missing many events and many patterns of harm and have a far poorer understanding of how their care is being delivered. So I thought about this and I think that's, that's how many healthcare systems do it. The ones that I know of, I think this resonates and, and rings true. How many of us have adverse event monitoring tools in place looking for error outside of your typical reporting process? When a patient falls, breaks their hip, and goes to the OR, yes, that one's going to be reported. We all know about that one. But what about the episode of hypoglycemia that happens on the medical floor? I ran to a buddy at uh, the Epic User Group meeting, and we were talking about this. And he wanted to know what the rate of hypoglycemia was on his medical floor. So he jumped into, Epic's got a self-service analytics tool called Slicer Dicer. So he jumps into this tool and says, show me the episodes of hypoglycemia in the last month. And I guess the question is, is how many is the right number? What if, what if you have 10 in your system? Is that, is that okay? How of those patients who had hypoglycemia, how many of them probably have a little surge of catecholamines that leads to a little myocardial stress and a leak of enzymes or a non-ST segment MI. And that's harm, but it probably would not be reported. We probably wouldn't even know about it most of the times unless you're just routinely checking cardiac enzymes on patients. So most of these would probably go unreported. So I think the article makes a great point. We probably miss a significant amount of harm in our systems and as CMIOs, if we can look and shine the light on some of these, we could go a long way towards improving the safety uh, on, on our floors. And so the hypoglycemia one was just one, one obvious uh, area to explore. I'm sure others will come up with, with new ones. And please write to me. Let me know what they are. I think we should share some of these around. And as CMIOs, just talk about, hey, which, which of these can we start to report on and understand and maybe even benchmark amongst each other? Next article. This one 
is also out of Health IT News. It's How to Solve the Goldilocks Dilemma of Health Data Sharing by Mike Milliard, August 29th, 2019. The article goes on to talk about the two sides of this debate of interoperability. There are those who are out there advocating, saying, we have to keep the data safe, we have to protect the patients, we have to keep that data locked down. And there are those on the other side saying, we need to open this up. The, the health insurance companies, the EHR vendors, the healthcare system should not be locking this data down so that no one can get to it. And that would be great for patient care if that data could flow across systems easier. And so I, I believe this is coming to light a little bit more. Um, it came up at the Epic UGM conference where Judy Faulkner stood in front of the entire group of about 10,000 of us and was talking about uh, how she's clearly not a fan of the ONC's proposed interoperability rules and that any attempt to open up the data to third parties is going to hurt the EHR vendor's business model. And uh, that makes sense. And if you, you understand that Epic is trying to protect their, their business here, and they're going to come out and say that gee, you can't trust third parties with the data, you don't know what they're going to do with it, look at what Facebook did, and look at what Google does, and, and some of these others. And there's some truth to that. So the CMIOs should absolutely be aware that there's a risk of third parties taking data and, and doing nefarious things with it, or either intentionally or unintentionally. On the other side of the equations, that patients want to get access to their data, and it's quite possible that the data is safest in the hands of an individual patient. That when you take all this data and centrally aggregate it and put it in, in the health system, is the health system the absolute best place to protect data? It's not what we do for a living every day. It's not um, where we put 100% of our resources. If you look at something like um, the, the NSA or the CIA, where they are completely devoted to protecting their secrets, that you know, they are absolutely spending huge dollars on that. We just can't in healthcare. So maybe we shouldn't be protecting it. Maybe that data belongs somewhere else. And if you spread it out uh, across to each individual patient, there's much less risk. So CMIOs, I think you should simply be aware of both sides, and that's what the article is about, is this Goldilocks dilemma. Is it too hot or is it too cold? Is, is there too much regulation, not enough regulation, is what the article was getting at. Is, uh, is it uh, the data too siloed or not siloed enough? So I'll leave it to you to decide as to how much of this is fear-mongering on the, the, uh, each constituency saying that, that their way is right and the other way is evil and how much of it is simply just a challenge to, to be overcome. All right, jumping into the next article. Yeah, this one really bothered me. VA's paper health records digitization backlog is five miles high, the VA OIG says. This is by Heather Landy on August 23rd. So, I'll read you some lines from this article. If every single one of the paper documents that still needs to be digitized at the VA were stacked, it would reach more than five miles up, a federal watchdog said. In addition, the VA medical facilities currently have a backlog of nearly 600,000 electronic documents that still need to be entered into the electronic health record system, 
as of July 2018, with some documents dating back to October of 2016. This is according to an audit conducted by the VA's Office of Inspector General. The backlog occurred because staff did not scan documents and enter them into the electronic medical records in a timely manner. Staff also did not always perform appropriate reviews and monitoring to assess the overall quality and legibility of scanned documents. How does this happen? Well, non-VA providers send medical documents to the VA medical systems for staff to scan or import into the patient's EHRs which helps ensure continuity of care by healthcare providers. Incorporating these non-VA medical documents into the EHR is critical to supporting patient care because it contributes to more complete, accurate, and readily accessible health records that guide clinician decisions. So why does CMIO need to know about this? I hate scanning. I think it is the bane of our existence. It absolutely is horrible for patient care. So for those of you who deal with scanning, and I'm sure every CMIO in some way, shape, or form has to touch into this, when those scan documents come in, they come in as a PDF, they get dumped into something that's similar to a media file and gets junked into the chart where it's not searchable, where you can't get discrete data out of it. If the recommendation for the colonoscopy is every, every three years instead of every 10 years, good luck finding it in that PDF. Someone has to go manually looking through it to pull out the critical points and then enter that into the discrete data fields in the EHR until we get better at our ability to read these notes electronically and pull out the, uh, the little golden nuggets of information. And so the VA here has a problem. That data from 2016 is probably useless for most of it. And until we get to the situation where we can easily send data back and forth across these EHRs and be able to communicate from provider to provider and get that data into the right spot in our charts, we're stuck with this ancient workflow of scanning data in and it's never going to be done correctly. There are very few people on this planet who wake up in the morning excited to scan documents into the EHR and feels incredibly motivated to get that information into the right place and even sometimes even hooked up into the right patient. So uh, our bigger issue is to fix the scanning mess. Uh, we don't want to be scanning in any way, shape, or form and we are kind of stuck with it until somebody comes up with a better mousetrap. Next article. Uh, this one was just kind of fun. Advent Health unveils the largest of its kind command center. This um, was, came out of the Orlando Sentinel from August 28, 2019. It was a picture of their command center that they just put in. For those of you who are not familiar, uh, this is Advent Health from Orlando. They put in a 12,000 square foot, $20 million command center with wall-to-wall -wall video screens that are updated every three to five seconds, keeping track of every patient who's at one of the health system's nine hospitals in Central Florida, or is about to be transferred there, or is being discharged. And they show a picture, and you can see these, these huge screens, and it does, it literally looks like a, a NASA uh, launch site. And there's an army of people sitting in this room, all monitoring and working on these, uh, these monitors. So 
uh, I, I went to my CIO and said that, hey, we, we need one of these and showed, showed him the picture. I got a, a soft chuckle and then he kind of walked away shaking his head. So I'm guessing that's a no. But if you ever want to get a rise out of your CIO, just go ahead and, and bring this article to, to them and say, hey, we, we need this. That $20 million we have laying around has to happen. I think it's fantastic that some are doing it. It's wonderful that uh, the resources are being put into helping to move patients more efficiently through our system. Of course, there's waste in our system. There are patients that wait for tests, patients that wait to go into an OR. Our coordination of care is, is horribly inefficient. And if this is what it takes to do it right, fantastic. Can't wait to see the results that come out of it. Hopefully, that they will be able to demonstrate that having all this tech and the artificial intelligence that's evidently behind the scenes helping them, I think it'll be fantastic to, to giving our patients a better experience. Uh, in the meantime, it, this thing has to be a fortune just to continue to operate, not to mention the initial expense, but uh, it, looked, it looked awesome. Next article. This one comes out of Kaiser Health News. And it's about uh, transparency in billing. So the title is, they got estimates before surgery and then a bill after surgery that was 50% more. And the story is about a gentleman by the name of Wolfgang Balzer. I think I said that right. And he is the perfect healthcare consumer. He's an engineer and he knew for several years that he had a hernia that would need to be repaired, but it was an emergency. So he waited until the time was right. And he took time to research what the cost would be. He reached out to the hospital, the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist to get estimates for the procedure. The hospital told him that the bill would be roughly $10,300, but that Cigna, his insurer, had negotiated a discount to roughly $7,000, and he would have to pay 20%. His share was going to work out to be roughly $1,400. And the surgeon's office quoted a normal rate of $1,675, but Cigna discounted rate was $470. He had a copay of about $94. And he reached out four times to the anesthesiologist's office and never got a return call. So he had his estimates in hand and then went off to surgery and everything proceeded fine, it sounds like. And then he got a bill. And the bill came out to be about double. His total payment that he had to come up with was $2,300, which was much more than what they budgeted for. And when they called the hospital to complain, they were told a quote is only a quote and it doesn't take into consideration complications, although in this case there were none. Um, the patient went home same day a few hours after he woke up from the surgery. The hospital estimates are often inaccurate and there's no legal obligation that they be correct or even be issued in good faith. But obviously this is not the case in other industries. Um, the hospital did go on to say that uh, this was a new system and perhaps the system doesn't have enough cases to provide an accurate estimate. We did not communicate effectively to him related to his estimate and this is not our norm. Uh, we will look at this experience and learn from this, which I think was good and the, the story has a happy ending. I think they wrote off a big chunk of his bill. Um, the final quote from the article I think is a great one, which is there's no other consumer industry where this would be tolerated. No doubt. So if a patient called up your health system right now, would they be able to get an accurate quote? Would they be able to go to the website? I'm sure they'll see your charge master. Will they be able to decipher that and understand? The article does mention about, this is a fairly intelligent individual who knew that there would be charges coming from anesthesia, charges coming from surgery, and separate charges coming from the hospital. So 
this guy seemed very well prepared and even still he couldn't get it done right and it's just the state of our system is horrible and as CMIOs we should recognize that this will be a source of frustration for our patients and our providers that patients will get angry and providers will then feel the brunt of that when patients are upset especially as these patients have larger out-of-pocket payments to be made I think that this is important for us to get right. There's going to be tools out there that are more effective than what we're using today and that we really should look to adopt these tools. It is important for our patients to get fair estimates of the price. Now I understand many hospitals are not thrilled about putting this out there because they are competing against a hospital that's four blocks down and they don't necessarily want everyone to understand the, the contractors the contracted rates that they've gotten from Cigna, Aetna, or whoever the player is. So they make it somewhat difficult to actually come up with a reasonable price estimate. Not the best thing for the consumer, probably not the best thing for our providers either, and we really ought to be looking at price transparency. The federal government is forcing this, and I think they will get increasingly more aggressive if we don't step up to do this voluntarily. I want to do one more article. And this one comes out of Fierce Healthcare, and it came out on August 28th by Joanne Finnegan. ZocDoc defends new pricing model as necessary for expansion. Some New York doctors criticize the changes. And so for those of you who are not familiar, ZocDoc is a, it's an online scheduling platform that creates a marketplace where patients can go to find a doctor and sign up for appointments. Here's the uh, article. Starting July 1, a new pricing model took effect for physicians in New York that use ZocDoc, a booking application that lets patients schedule appointments. And some doctors are not happy about this. In New York, the company lowered its subscription fee but started charging for a patient's initial booking, which means some doctors and practices who get a lot of new patients through ZocDoc will end up paying more. The digital platform connects patients and doctors and enables them to instantly book appointments online. ZocDoc said the change in its pricing is necessary to allow the company to expand to providers in suburban, rural, and specialty practices that wouldn't attract enough new patients to justify playing, paying a flat annual fee of roughly $3,000. So that's what it currently is, is $3,000. Under the change, physicians now pay an annual licensing fee that starts at $300, which covers account setup and maintenance, and then they pay for new patients that ranges between $35 to $110 based on their specialty. So the why is this important for a CMIO? Well, I guess my question is why do we need to do this? I am all in favor of innovation, but this just seems to me like in healthcare, we allow someone to come in and disintermediate us. Uh, they inserted themselves in between us and our patients and shame on us for allowing that to happen and we should all learn a lesson from this because we all have patient portals that lets our patients schedule they have the ability to go online and pick a, a time when they want to be seen but we don't allow it our providers do not like losing control of their schedules so someone else came in and did it to us and now the patients are going to get steered to where ZocDoc or whoever the online scheduler is to whoever's paying the right amount will then get patients steered to them. Now many health systems are not worried because they have too many patients they don't know what to do with them all they have no access so they are not willing to jump into a program like this and patients may end up going elsewhere but 
they've got enough business so the health system isn't terribly worried about it right now, but over the long term that might be an impact. I've helped two different systems now go live with direct patient scheduling and help the providers get over the anxiety of this. Without a doubt, the providers will hate this. Uh, we started with primary care and we started with established patients. That seems to be the area of least resistance. Most providers are not worried about letting their own current patients come into the office. They tend to be afraid of new patients because they don't know what they're getting. And I'm not convinced that we have this wonderful screening method in place that keeps the, the drug seekers and fibromyalgia patients out, which is what the doctors seem to want to do. Um, patients call the front desk and they get an appointment and they come in and be seen anyway. So I'm not sure what we're, what we're insulating ourselves from. Um, I can say that not one provider has died during any of these transitions that I've helped get us through. So the, the, everyone survives on the other side of this. I will tell you that providers that have been in the community for 20 plus years, they will never be convinced that opening up their schedules online is a good thing. I, I just don't even think that that's where you should spend your energy. Uh, certainly you want to try to temper the most vocal ones and help get them through it. I think you'll find new providers are fine. They don't care. They'll be like, sure, go ahead and open up, particularly those who um, are millennials and really uh, engage in this technology themselves. Uh, but you will not convince the older physicians that have established practices that are already full that they need this. I would say maybe don't even try. This is something as a system initiative that we are moving forward and that as part of the system they're going to find their schedule available online and that it's okay. They, they too will survive. So the, the big news out of this one isn't so much that ZocDoc is changing their model but more that ZocDoc exists and that we need these kinds of tools and I could see for those little independents out there that don't have a portal maybe built for their EHR and are struggling to get patients that they do need to join something like this. It's an advertising expense basically and for them it makes sense but I look at the ZocDoc webpage here and I see a bunch of large health systems that are on there and I'm not sure I get it as to why they're on there if they're spending marketing dollars I think they want to have that direct relationship with the patient and not have that relationship with ZocDoc. Just my two cents on the matter. Well, that's been about a little over 20 minutes worth of news, so I think we'll wrap it up here. I hope you're all enjoying your Labor Day and hopefully not having to board up your windows from a hurricane on the East Coast. Uh, stay safe, stay well, and that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.